after working with Brett for many years, um, indirectly and directly, it's a great pleasure to finally welcome him to the Wexner Center. Based in Atlanta, Brett is a writer, filmmaker, designer, and a film restoration artist, and he has worked for Kino, now Kino Lorber, for many years. You may remember seeing his documentary, Hell's Highway, the true story of highway safety films at the WEX way back in 2003. It explored the highway safety film genre and its deep Ohio connection, as many of those films were produced by the Highway Safety Foundation based in Mansfield, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. As someone involved in film restoration, Brett has produced the box sets Pioneers of African American Cinema, which received an award from the National Society of Film Critics, and Pioneers First Women Filmmakers, which won an award from the New York Film Critics Circle, and of course he restored the films that you're about to see this evening. His book, uh, Forbidden Fruit, The Golden Age of the Exploitation Film, provides ample background and the very colorful history uh, for the films that are included in this series and many more, and we carry it in the Wexner Center store um, if you'd like to um, purchase it, or obviously it's available on Amazon and places like that. Tonight, Brett joins us to um, give an overview of the series and to tell us the story of Dwayne Esper, the director of this evening's two features and one of the most notorious figures in the exploitation genre. In August, we'll be presenting Down and Dirty in Gower Gulch, Poverty Row Films Preserved at UCLA. And now join me in welcoming Brett Wood. Hello, and thanks for coming out on such a beautiful day. Um, what I'd like to do is give you a quick overview of the exploitation film for those who might not be as familiar with it as a genre. Um, it kind of uh, appeared on most people's radars in the 1970s when New Line Cinema re-released the film Reefer Madness uh, and then later the film Sex Madness, which is coming up later in this series, uh, on the midnight movie circuit. And they presented these as serious uh, uh, educational, informational films that you were encouraged to laugh at because look at how ridiculous it is and how they've got all the facts wrong and how they're trying to scare us with about the dangers of marijuana. And so that's when these sort of got onto the, uh, the pop cultural radar. Um, if you dig deeper into the films, you learn something very significant, and that is that the films were not really intended as educational, informational films. Um, that was sort of a ruse which allowed the filmmakers to dodge the censors. So as long as they could present a film as educational, then they could depict these horrible, horrible things that they're trying to protect the public from and warn them about. And uh, you, well, I'm just going to let you wait and see what you get to see. But it was things that were strictly um, forbidden under the production code. And um, you may know about the production code, and so the way that plays into it is it's a voluntary system by which the studios agree to avoid censorship from the government. We agree to uh, obey the recommendations and guidelines of the production code and censor ourselves so that film industry controlled, you know, it's sort of a form of self-censorship. Well, these are independent filmmakers. They were not governed by the MPPDA, which is now the MPAA with the ratings board. Um, so they could get around that. And by just branding the films as educational, they could have nudity. They could show drug abuse. They could show suicide. They could show all sorts of things that the major studio films could not show. And during the 
code era like 1934 and later couldn't even suggest it. So it really opened up this uh, fertile area of uh, topics which they could exploit in the uh, greatest tradition of showmanship. Um, and an important thing about this, because the more you know about what's really going on here, you realize this is a significant little period of film. It's, their films are much fun to watch. It's okay to laugh at them, but at the same time, hopefully you will appreciate the artistry of these self-taught filmmakers violating the codes of uh, good behavior and you know good conduct, violating the guidelines of censorship, um, and also sort of flying in the face of this major studio control of the industry. Um, and one of the, another way that they were important is that the studios at this time owned the theaters. So they produced the films, they distributed the films, they owned the theaters. So the independent theater could only get a studio film after it had played and played and played in the studio's own theaters. And so the exploitation film was something that those studios were not allowed to play. But a mom and pop theater, what we call Main Street theaters, could show this and have people lined up around the blocks. And that's really no exaggeration because, you know, I have photographs of people lined up around the block to see these films. They were so, uh, you couldn't see this kind of thing at these other theaters. So it really uh, helped independent theater survive during the Great Depression and uh, 30s and 40s. And it all kind of started to fizzle out around the 1950s. That's when uh, the studios were no longer allowed to own the theaters. Censorship was starting to dissolve. And at that point, films didn't have to pretend to be educational. They could go ahead and show nudity or show drug abuse. It was becoming socially acceptable. And so these pretend educational films stopped being made. So, but there for about 20 years, they had a nice little run they crafted a cool little genre with its own rules. For instance, there's always a scroll of text explaining how educational this is. Um, there's very often someone addressing the audience directly, where it'll be a mayor or a principal or a doctor talking to the audience. And a lot of times they would have a live lecture actually speaking to the audience. 